Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Michel Foucault ends his short piece, The Subject and Power, with a section on power relations and relations of strategy. So he's going to be clarifying for us what this term strategy signifies, a term that goes all the way back to ancient Greek and then comes all the way forward to the present in which it has multiple senses, and then how this is connected with power relationships and with other things that impinge upon power relationships. We should remind ourselves once again that the common idea that Foucault thinks that everything is power is actually misguided and is revealed as such in this very essay or piece that we're working our way through. Foucault thinks that power is absolutely central and power relationships have been often misunderstood, but not everything is simply power or even power relationships. So he begins by telling us that the word strategy is currently employed in three ways. And this is pretty typical of the 20th century and I would say the 21st century as well. People often do get these senses of strategy mixed up and it's reflected in, you know, how we organize corporate behavior or decision making. So the very first sense of this is one that I think is familiar to us when we talk about having a business strategy or something along those lines, a strategy to implement a set of policies or procedures. He says, it designates the means employed to attain a certain end. So the means that we select. And this means that you know, strategy is something distinctively rational and human, although we can also perhaps talk about animals engaging in strategy or even plants, you know, engaging in a kind of selection of the best means, perhaps not in a, a rational, but more instinctually driven way. But with human beings, we actually, he says, it's a question of rationality functioning to arrive at an objective. So we have a, a goal, an objective, an ends, a telos, then we have to select means means for those. And this is something that we human beings do all the time. You know, you've got a toothache. Well, should you just put an analgesic on it and cover it up? Should you go to the dentist? Should you brush your teeth harder? All of these are possible means. Should you like try to look in the mirror, you know, with a light in your mouth? These aren't mutually exclusive, by the way, but those could all be strategies. Then we have a second use of the term. And here's where it gets very interesting and where human beings may not be the only animals that do this, but we, we certainly go far beyond the other animals. He says, it designates the way in which a partner in a certain game acts with regard to what he thinks should be the action of the others and what he considers the others think to be his own. So there's two important sides to this. Strategic action, strategic decision-making, strategic reflection means thinking about that other person over there and what their response or counter-response or their action before my action is going to be. Think about, for example, fencing, where you have these swords, you know, and you're in the masks and stuff like that. 
I used to fence Sabre, and in Sabre there's what's called right-of-way rules, somewhat similar to FOIL. And so if somebody initiates an attack, you generally need to parry that attack before making your own riposte, your own counter-attack, right? And if you get hit before that, the point goes to the other person. There is the possibility of doing a stop thrust or stop cut, though, in, in the tempo ahead of it. Somebody starts to move, and you move even faster than they do. These are all strategic moves. And we can talk about games theory as attempting to model this, very often quite unsuccessfully, because it makes so many assumptions about just how simple and rational human beings are. But when we're engaging in real strategy in this sense, we're no longer treating the other human being is just a problem to be solved as like a set of stimulus and responses. We're treating them as another subject. And we're saying, how is this other subject viewing me while I'm viewing them? And if I do this, what are they going to do in response? Or what if they do this? What response should I have? What's the third sense? He says, the third is to designate the procedures used in a situation of confrontation to deprive the opponent of his means of combat and reduce him to giving up the struggle. It is a question, therefore, of the means destined to obtain victory. Now, you might say, well, that just sounds like something else in the second sense or the first sense, but this is a little bit different. This is an attempt to reduce a subject to an object, an object that can no longer fight back against you, an object that can no longer exercise agency of its own, except in the ways that we, the victors, want them to do so. And we've probably all had the experience of power being used on us in such a way as to deprive us of any possibility of choice on our own part at one point or another. That's what this is about. This is going to be tied in with what Foucault is, is calling domination a little bit later. So... These are all different senses of strategy. And he says these three meanings come together in situations of confrontation, war, or games, where the objective is to act on the adversary in such a way as to render the struggle impossible for him. Think about, for example, Monopoly, right? In Monopoly, you're not like, you know, directly attacking the other person. You're just sort of sucking money out of them bit by bit by bit. And there's strategy involved in which things to purchase and should you put hotels here and how to play and whether to make alliances with other players. There's all sorts of things involved in that. We don't have to necessarily go to a combat game to see this playing out. And then he says, it must be borne in mind that war and games is a very special type of situation. And there are others in which the distinctions between the different sense of strategy must be maintained. So in the, the game sense, the third one, you could say dominates the other two and sucks them in. What about in the many other kinds of relations that we can have? So he says, referring to the first sense I've indicated, one may call some systems of power strategy, the totality of means put into operation to implement power effectively or to maintain it. So that's the first sense, right? Means, mechanisms, aiming at teleological repetitions or reproductions, you know, maintaining power means reproducing power over time. 
So you could think about educational institutions. You could think about the military, not simply as attacking another military, but the military as an institution in itself. You could think of prisons. You could think of the workhouse or, you know, nowadays the factory or the office. We, we could go on and on and on with the examples that Foucault has. Every one of them has strategy involved in that way. You're the CEO or the CIO or one other C-suite executive or a manager. You have to figure out how to use the means at your disposal to attain the ends that you want. And a lot of those are going to be human means. We move on to the second sense. He says, we can also speak of a strategy proper to power relations insofar as they constitute, and this is like the typical phrase that Foucault uses in this essay, modes of action on possible action, the action of others. Thus, one can interpret the mechanisms brought into play in power relations in terms of strategies. So we are also engaging each other in power relations, whatever they may happen to be, teacher to student, administrator to teacher, teacher to janitor, ordering the janitor to clean up a mess that students have made. We can go on and on and on. Modes of action on the possible action of others, getting others to do the things that you would like them to do and anticipating perhaps their own counter responses. Sorry, I can't take care of that right now. I'm on my break. I'm busy with something else. I'll put that into my list of things to do and put it, you know, in lower priority, right? There's all sorts of possible moves in this sort of situation. Then we have the third set of strategy in power relations. He says the most important is the relationship between power relations and confrontation strategies. So that's an interesting term there. Confrontation strategies are where the powerful attempts to make other powerful or powerless agents into non-agents, to break them down and to reduce them from subjects into objects, to deprive them of agency of choice and to make them amenable to fitting into power relations in the first sense being a mere means or mechanism, right? And there's various ways to do this. Belittling people is one way, right? Tearing down their self-esteem, threatening to use police authority upon them, engaging in surveillance could be another prime example. So he goes on and he says that there's a couple other things that are really important here. If it is true that at the heart of power relations and as a permanent condition of their existence, there is, notice this term that he's going to use, an insubordination and a certain essential obstinacy on the part of the principles of freedom, then there is no relationship of power without the means of escape or possible flight. Although people would like to pretend that in many cases, there are extremes, of course, but that in many cases that Power is simply this relation that the powerful exercise on the less powerful or the powerless and they just determine them. There's always the possibility of insubordination, of concealment, of obstinacy, saying, I know I'm not going to do that, pretending not to understand, of exercising a certain degree of freedom and of escape in some respect. Now, of course, that can get you into further trouble. The obstinate person may get fired, may get physically punished, may get reduced in their social status. There's all sorts of possibilities here. But like he says, every power relationship implies, at least in potentia, a strategy of struggle. 
So now we find out that the third sense of strategy actually evokes another kind of strategy, a strategy of resistance, of struggle on the part of the one who power is being exercised over. So he says, a relationship of confrontation reaches its term, its final moment, when stable mechanisms replace the free play of antagonistic relations. But it's always possible for things to, you could say, come unglued and these insubordination obstinacy to happen again. And he notes that one of the things that's going on on the part of the person exercising this third sense of strategy is what he calls the fixing of a power relationship. That becomes a target. My intention is to get things to be in a certain way in relation to the other person. And he goes on and says, at one, at the same time, it's fulfillment and it's suspension. It's something that we can never completely manage to bring about. Or when we do, we find that we have reduced human beings down to mere animals or machines. And we come up against what he calls the outer limits of power. It says this reaches its final term, either in a type of action that reduces the other to total impotence in which case victory over the adversary replaces the exercise of power. Power is only really exercised over somebody who can say no to some degree or by a confrontation with those whom one governs in their transformation into adversaries. So adversaries in the sense of fighting back, saying no, suggesting something else, doing something else, siphoning off resources, not mopping the floor that well, right? And Foucault concludes this by talking a little bit about domination. He tells us that between a relationship of power and a strategy of struggle, there is a reciprocal appeal, a perpetual linking, and a perpetual reversal. And we can have two different readings of the fundamental phenomena of domination that are present, he says, in a large number of human societies. Then he goes on and says, domination is a general structure of power whose ramifications and consequences can sometimes be found reaching down into the fine fabric of society. And he points out that domination doesn't mean just one single thing. It could be something that has just come about. Like he says, it may happen. The fact of domination may be only the transcription of a mechanism of power resulting from confrontation and its consequences, like in a political structure stemming from invasion. It may also be that a relationship of struggle between two adversaries is the result of power relations with the conflicts and cleavages they engender. And then he goes on to say, what makes the domination of a group, a caste or a class together with the resistance and revolts that domination comes up against these limits, right? The resistance and revolts and heel dragging and whatever else you want to call it. He says, a central phenomenon in the history of societies is that these resistance and revolts manifest in a massive and global form the locking together of power relations with relations of strategy and the results proceeding from their interaction. So Foucault is laying out for us here a very complex picture of power relations, and he's using this term strategy and unpacking its various senses to help us understand just how complex and varied power relations can actually be, and also this desire for a full domination of the other, which is often only imagined or illusory, not fully brought about by those who attempt to 
impose it. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.